2: Hello and welcome to the Cartoon Salooniverse, the podcast that sings the songs of one of the world's greatest animation studios, Cartoon Saloon. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen the lot of them.
3: I'm Steph Watts.
2: And I'm Jake Cunningham. And we're joining the chorus. So join us in our quest into the glorious world of Cartoon Saloon. jake and steph a pleasure to be talking cartoon saloon again with you today already our takes are flying thick and fast but we do know that it's not always about what we think about these films is it jake
1: no absolutely not um i would never dream that my opinion would be the best opinion on anything let alone a film of this quality um as we have done on our previous series we would love to hear from you, our listeners. Uh, so we will be doing a mailbag episode at the end of our cartoon Salooniverse miniseries. And if you've got any stories or memories or thoughts about any of these films that we're talking about, do get in touch. Or even if it's some of the shorts, the TV series like Puffin Rock, uh, which we're going to be exploring in that episode as well, do shout. And you can reach us at ghibli at little.studios.com. But before we get to that episode, we have
2: to do today's episode, which is all about Cartoon Saloon's second film, Song of the Sea. Steph, could you tee this one up for us, please?
3: Song of the Sea tells the story of Ben and his little sister Saoirse, the last seal child, who embark on a fantastic journey across a fading world of ancient legend and magic in an attempt to return to their home by the sea. The film takes inspiration from the mythological selkies of Irish folklore, who live as seals in the sea, but become humans on land.
2: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
0: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: Michael, last week you laid a beautiful foundation for us with the secrets of Kells and the the origin story of Cartoon Saloon as a company and all of their key directors and producers How does that story evolve and how do we get to Song of the Sea?
2: Right. So we left them with Secrets of Kells getting international acclaim, playing at festivals around the world, receiving an Oscar nomination. Not a bad showing for a first feature. So off the back of that, apparently Tom Moore starts getting all sorts of offers to work in the States. Um, He decided to stick, you know, stick with the studio he's just founded and stay independent He says um, in an interview I read, after the Secrets of Kells, a couple of things I was offered were things that fell apart or didn't work out the way they were supposed to. If I take them, I would have regretted it. But that was not an easy route to take, really, if you think about it. They were a fledgling studio still having to fight for funding for any project they had to make. Um, Paul Young, the producer and one of the co-founders of Cartoon Saloon, um, talks about this phase where the key members of the team had to take out loans in order to stay afloat. And as they sort of built their commercial business and their reputation, for as an example of the sort of commercial stuff they'd be doing at the time, I read somewhere that they'd be doing the sort of slightly cheesy animations for e-cards that you'd get. Um, <laughs> you know, amazing thing you'd go from making Oscar winning features to doing that to keep the lights on. But here's a quote from Paul Young, because it's a quite a fascinating period. Paul Young says, Even with an Oscar and BAFTA nomination behind us, we found ourselves in a black hole of having no cash. We had a difficult couple of years, but I think we stuck with it as we had good projects we wanted to develop and had faith that we would raise the money eventually. We also took part in a strategic planning course run by Screen Training Island, and it forced us to get together as company directors and really think about the kind of company we wanted to be and not simply limp from one job or project to the next. So this is where they start professionalizing in a way you know they they were the the art school kids who formed a company and made a film and now they're becoming a real uh, you know a, a real powerhouse and over the course of this story for the making of song of the sea they really level up and become the studio we know them as today so song of the sea would be that next feature that Tom Moore wanted to make he originally had the idea during the production of seekers of kells and thought um he might make it into a comic book i think at the time he said but then decided to work with um, you know the, the great collaborators that he'd worked with on Secrets of Kells to make it into a feature. There's a really interesting story about how the inspiration struck Tom. He was on holiday on the west coast of Ireland during the production of Secret of Kells with his wife and his son, who's called Ben and was 10 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were on the beach. He said they were sketching on the beach one morning and they just saw washing upon the shore all these decaying corpses of seals And the landlady of the cottage they were staying in said that it's because of like the local fishermen, you know, because of the the collapse in fishing kind of stock at the time had turned to killing seals. And she was just completely, you know, thrown by this saying, you know, uh, mere years ago, this would not be allowed because seals were seen as these mythological creatures and very much... Uh, tied to folklore you wouldn't dare it'd be bad luck to kill a seal but clearly something had changed um, in the the sort of national uh, national mood and Tom Moore says in interviews that um, this occurrence in the conversation with the landlady reminded him of all of the stories he remembers hearing or reading or seeing on tv growing up um, about selkies and about Irish folklore and he wondered about how these folk tales could just slip away and die out between generations and he wanted to use that idea as a route into making a film about the island of his childhood Um, there's a quote from the press materials at the time tom moore says i started thinking about how we are losing so much more than just stories when we lose our folklore a respect for the balance of nature and the old traditions was being lost
1: too it's um it's interesting that that was the origin for the seal story because tom is very much a a passionate vegan and has been a vegetarian for much longer as well and Mm -hmm. i imagine there is definitely some link in seeing that sight of these dead seals and that kind of instigating something within him and his passion for that balance of nature and how wrong that sight was just to to his internal Mm -hmm. belief system
2: Absolutely. It, it, it makes sense once you see the film and then hear that backstory and then learn a bit more about Tom Moore and his worldview. It's all there in the film. So as with Secrets of Kells, um, The Song of the Sea is um, a European co-production. And this time we have funding coming in from, let's let's, let's rattle off the countries, Luxembourg, <laughs> Denmark, France and Belgium as well as Ireland. So really bringing all of Europe together into this production. Not all of Europe, of course. Great swathes of Europe together for this for this film. Uh, many of the key collaborators from Secrets of Kells return here. Paul Young is producer. Nora Toomey is head of story, as well as the voice director. Ross Stewart was there at the beginning of the project. He gave Tom Moore, when he came back from that holiday, a book of folk stories, particularly about the seal people of Scottish and Irish folklore. And that served as some key inspiration early on in the drafting of the development of the story. But Ross Stewart also provided concept art of the Irish landscape that we still see in the final film. Bruno Coulet, the composer, and the band Keeler are back providing music. But there's a key newcomer here that I'd like to highlight. And this is the screenwriter, Will Collins. He apparently just like emailed Cartoon Saloon saying that he wanted to get into writing for animation. He was a screenwriter at the time, of course. He wasn't just a random bloke. Um, And he said that his favourite film of all time was My Neighbour Totoro. So clearly was on the same wavelength as the studio. Um, And then there's some more spooky stuff happens. Apparently the screenplay that he'd written that had just been turned into a film um, was set during the exact same time period that Tom Moore wanted to set Song of the Sea. So specifically October 1987. (laughs) (laughs) And Tom Moore said, said that um, uh, his wife at the time you know, was was joking that, has this guy been rooting around in our bins just to, <laughs> just to butter you up? <laughs> so Will Collins is on board, develops that screenplay over four or five years with Tom Moore. And he sticks around as well, comes back to co-write Wolfwalkers further down the line, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. But that's one of the key things I think that um, I'd like to highlight in this context Across these these four features in the TV series, you see the same names coming up again. You see them rising through the ranks. You see them developing as artists. Um, maybe you know the, an animator on one project comes along and then co creates one of their TV shows down the line. We can't go through credit by credit in these context sections. I'm I'm already aware that I'm running long with these, but um, just to say that Cartoon Saloon really ha- does have this collegiate family atmosphere where people do seem to stick around and develop their talents and uh, rise through the ranks song of the sea then premieres at toronto film festival in 2014 and does the rounds on the festival circuit it hits cinemas towards the end of that year and into 2015 i saw it in july or over the summer in 2015 when it was released then the big thing in 2015 is that it receives an oscar nomination for best animated feature so it's cartoon saloon are two for two on oscar noms. And this is the year where I really think they could have won it if I was, if, if I could go back and wave a magic wand. So let's go through the, the category that year. You know, I love subjecting you both to this. <laughs> These are the nominees for Best Animated Feature 2015. The Box Trolls, Big Hero 6, How to Drain Your Dragon 2, Song of the Sea, and The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. And I think even knowing how biased towards Disney and towards American animation... Um, the Oscar voters are that's a year where you have a like a stop motion film you have Song of the Sea Cartoon Saloon and you have Isao Takahata's masterpiece The Tale of Princess Kageya. there are three f- films that really should have won it there do you remember <laughs> what won it? Jake and Steph? Was it
3: Big Hero 6? It was Big Hero 6 <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> So Jake and Steph I know you've both seen this
1: film now where would you have given you the Oscar that year if you could have? I mean, oh, um, just for purely sentimental value, looking back, I would have loved to have given it to the tale of the Princess Kaguya just as this kind of final celebration of Hissaltak Hatter. Um, but I, I really love this film um, and I, I would have been very, very happy for it to go to Song of the Sea just uh, just to give it to someone else as well, like a non-relatively mainstream pick. Because Ghibli having won it before, I suppose, people maybe would have got used to seeing them around this category. But to like take this independent Irish studio and give such a big award to them would have been wonderful. But why is it so wonderful? I think it's about time we delve into that. Let's talk about Song of the Sea.
2: Steph, you were watching this for the first time. You've just we've just watched Secret of Kells and we go and sit down and watch Song of the Sea. Uh, what are we seeing develop from that film into this one?
3: Uh yeah, so I mean, when watching Secret of Kells for the first time, um, I was really struck by that kind of very 2D, flat, kind of medieval-esque art style. Um, and this is definitely kind of carrying on in this film, but it's it feels kind of like a little bit more developed and you have some of those kind of um, planes of perspective a little bit more, um, I guess because this one isn't really set in medieval times, so it doesn't need to, to mimic that style as much, but you still have this kind of really strong cartoon saloon style coming through um, that you can kind of just turn on and know that this is the animation studio you're watching. Um, and You still have all these kind of, I think where Secret of Kells, they have like so many ideas coming in, even from the start, like a lot of kind of different textures, different types of strokes and, and kind of loads of these different, yeah, ideas coming in on the page. This one does feel like a little bit more reserved in that sense, but still with this kind of really, yeah, strong 2D, really interesting style um, already from the outset.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a homogenization of uh, creative expression here. And that's that's really tied to the story, but it's really tied to the form of the film. I think in Secret of Chaos, it's very, it's incredibly beautiful, that film, but it's fairly scattergun as to what elements or what style might fit in what type of scene. And that can be great for those individual moments. Uh, but this is managing to find those individual moments give them their own expressive look but then bringing that under a style umbrella that fits the entire film
2: yeah i'd probably say whereas in the last episode i think we talked about how all of the influences were there almost competing with each other you'd have stuff that looked ripped out of mid-90s disney Gendi tartakovsky blocky character figures um and then also the, the sort of the the celtic Influence as well. Whereas here, it seems to all cohere around a bit more of a European animation look. Very sort of clear lines, very minimal in, in a way. You know, characters are really only sketched out of a handful of lines, not much detail, much more blocky, bright, vibrant colors as well that define the characters. It makes me think of you know, French animation, Belgian animation, you know, dating all the way back to sort of the The Tintin books here. Mm-hmm. However, they also have these such you know, very expressive eyes and faces in a cartoon way. You know, Tisha in particular uh, as, as a character who really is only like a, a wisp of hair and big yeah. eyes. She is, is, she's, is so
1: expressive. She's amazing. Like for a non-verbal character as well, uh, the amount that she communicates is remarkable just from like the turn of her mouth or the blink of an eye and it's what is amazing about her design and what's amazing about so many of the designs here is as you say Michael they they appear to be simple but it's so attached to the story and to the journey that the characters are going on as well just the shape of them like Saoirse is this almost like angelic pure creature so of course she would just be a circle um, and then you've got um, our craggy dad and he is tied to this mythical creature who is literally a cliff who has turned to stone. And that is very much reminiscent of what that character is going through at that time. And it, I mean, it's it's not subtle. Like, like like that's like in the screenplay drawing comparison between the two. But that's true of all of the characters, like the the grandmother who is this, who appears to be like, this bird who's just kind of grabbing and nibbling uh, at people but of course that pays off down the line as well with the introduction of a nasty bird character who is very reminiscent of the grandmother um but again it's all just little <laughs> it's all just circles and triangles and just really really smoothly like refining exactly what these characters need to look like to purpo- to reflect as strongly as possible, what that character needs to do.
3: I think the kind of the use of um, kind of silent or quiet moments in this film really helped that as well. Cause Obviously, like you said, kind of Sersha doesn't speak and you have these really lovely sequences where there is just no talking. It's just kind of all showing you through the kind of visual language and um, letting you really kind of absorb that animation and the character designs and the way that they move to actually tell the story. And I think this film comes off so strong just for having those kind of small moments of space and moments of quiet that you can actually reflect because it's a really sad film and it's like I think the fact that it is kind of quietly sad makes it so much more devastating (laughs) rather than kind of a lot of yelling and screaming and crying um it's really kind of reserved and that makes it kind of all the more emotional really I oh
1: think. yeah I mean you, the dad character I mean it's that that horrible thing of a parent just being sad rather than angry and that is mm. a lot lot worse for any child <laughs> to witness
2: <laughs> and it's um my fave sad Brendan Gleeson back for a second wonderful sad performance in a cartoon saloon film I think I think we're, we're we're touching on something there, which is how this is both a development from and a departure from Secret of Kells. So, in the character designs, character animation, we, we we see this development, but it's still in terms of the landscapes very similar. The way it plays with depth and perspective, but also the way that it sets up these dichotomies between a built-up urban area versus a natural, more wild landscape. In this case, it's you know Dublin and the coast. Um, but then, as you say, story-wise, if it it feels like a a leveling up in the way that it has, as you say, a story about grief, bereavement, a parent who is sad, and how you deal with that. But also, it is still completely about what we said in the context about folklore and the dying of some sort of national identity and character that happens in the background of history. So it's, it's really fascinating to see how they take off. There's still very key distinctive elements that have been taken from Seekers of Kells, but the canvas is much larger and more (laughs) ambitious in a way.
1: Well, and in that kind of larger fantasy folklore story, Uh, and the subtext that you can read within it both are about communication and that that's something that's going to carry through all of what we talk about with cartoon saloon and in particular stories and the telling of stories and that is something that they seem to be so focused on because that was all of that's what the secret of cows was all about the the writing of this book and then come the end of the film the telling of the stories of that book and that's absolutely what we find in here but it's tied to that emotional thing of just of just talking which is something that i mean i know it's very popular in lots of wellness podcasts and spoken word adverts (laughs) um to to communicate um but it it, it's about not bottling up emotions and being able to share them and that is it's, it's a simple thing but it's a powerful thing to put in a kid's film um and just to think that the triumph of all of this can lead to something amazing and beautiful and all those spirits in the sky and that stems from just talking about how you feel which is yeah lovely
3: i think on a kind of um on a personal level for the characters as well like Stories can be the best way to remember somebody. And I mean, Ben is kind of remembering his mum through this like book of stories that she told him. And I think there's like, I think maybe the dad has a picture of her in his kind of room, but I I can't remember seeing like a huge amount of pictures or Ben kind of looking at a picture of her. It's like, that's his main way of remembering his mum and also passing on, his memories of her to Sertia, who didn't like get to meet her. So I think it definitely kind of has that feeling of when somebody passes away and you're kind of, you share all those kind of stories about them or things they used to say and, and that kind of thing. That's such a great moment of kind of levity and relief from grief a little bit and a really good way to, to deal with that. And I think this kind of that element of, of the story. Works really
2: well. We've we've gone quite deep, quite quickly on this, and I think (laughs) that it is a real triumph of this film, and shows that the ambition that Cartoon Saloon had going into it that they really wanted to make a film that appealed very much to kids, but then could have some wisdom to it, could have a universal appeal emotionally, but then have a specific appeal in, in certain themes as well. You do have, as you say jake it is about emotions and bottling up and communicating reaching out and sharing it's about understanding people it's about grief it's about remembering lost loved ones steph as you say the, the mother who dies and uh, and and the son reckoning with that it's but then also kind of on the sort of seven or eight, eight year old watching this level it plays like an amblin movie from the 80s where there's a there's an evil granny and the the brother has reluctantly got to get back to his dad with his with his sis dragging his sister along behind him but through the through the experience of that builds a relationship with her as well yeah. and of course there's a an incredibly cute dog that they have along the <laughs> way <laughs> <laughs> so it's the fact that it interlocks all these things so well and lands I think all of them very well too. The thing we haven't said and this is Jake where I think that uh, our two big um unifying theories of cartoon saloon might be so sort of departing with this film, you know, diverging at this film. For me this is absolutely about the folklore in the landscape and what we lose when that is lost and what we could gain if we remember it. Um, For me, the key moments of the film is all the way through, we've been having these sort of mythical creatures and characters kind of lost in the landscape of the the town, which is almost like an image ripped out of films we talked about before, where it's like in that roundabout that looks like an overgrown mossy mess, there are actual creatures from folklore and history and myth. Um, But all the way through, those characters are kind of jokey, kind of silly. Um, you know, the I, I think of the um, the chap with the, the the incredibly long beard. You know, he, he is he is portrayed almost as a as a as a light relief character in a way, even though there are sinister elements around that scene. He himself is a forgetful storyteller. There's some there's a natural irony to him there. But then by the end, when Sersha finally sings her song, and it's almost the, the almost like something out like Lord of the Rings, the elves going to the West. <laughs> we see them all come to life as the characters they are through, art, through the stories, through the oral tradition, and they become these big, vibrant, powerful, beautiful beings. And there's some, something proud about that moment, about how these stories may seem silly to some people. This culture may seem silly to some people or be demeaned or uh, made turn into jokes by some people, but this tradition is what, you know, it's at the heart of everything and gives us strength. Oh, yeah. Um, so I just, wanted, I just wanted to get my my massive no. theory out.
1: <laughs> and I, I don't think that's a wild idea, Michael, and, and I agree with you on it. Um, and what I think is so impressive about these films is that you do have this national pride and heritage that is baked into I mean look at the the forgetful storyteller he lives underground he's in the sewers he's in the he's in the veins of the country uh and we mentioned that in secret of Celts where you've got people in the roots that's how deep these things go and the cartoon saloon can tell these stories that have all that much tradition in them but at no point does this feel like it's in like a tommy robinson who remembers the good old days type facebook page uh it's it's not that at all it's managing to kind of bring these things into the modern era um and kind of manage to turn away all of the the dirt that might come with them and just get all of the goodness out of it instead
2: and that's how it resolves as part of the emotional thread it's like through connections with that tradition it brings us closer to our lost loved ones and brings new connections to the loved ones we still have with us so it isn't nostalgic it doesn't really come across as reactionary or nationalistic or 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 xenophobic or any of the things that we might associate with with patriotism and and that sort of thing it's really interesting and then also goes all the way back to what we were just saying about it's clearly tom moore's worldview you know if we still believed or took seriously the folk tales of our ancestors, we
1: wouldn't be killing seals. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I, I just wanted to mention something that only like, was on the, uh, an odd research discovery, which was that there was a guy called Dennis Cosgrove who wrote a paper in the, in the 80s about uh, the representations of landscape and how we are used to viewing landscape as in a landscape painting and that that was created uh, out of the dream of the English country garden, and that you would actually kind of shape your garden to be perfect for the way that you view your landscape, and that that kind of removed the autonomy of nature, and that we only view, we imagine things from a landscape perspective, because we forced that view onto it, rather than letting nature just provide its own course, and I'm sure, like, Cartoon Saloon are probably not reading academic papers from Dennis Cosgrove, but they, the way that the landscape is shown here and that it's, it's not like eye level for a human scanning the landscape, that it can be flat, it can be over the top, it can be bird's eye view, and it cannot even make sense to how we might perceive it. But if that's the strongest representation of the expression and emotion that is within the landscape, then that's how they're going to show it instead and I thought like, that that's giving some agency back to nature rather than it coming from the humans, which I mean, I think that carries over through all, all their films as well. Um, but permit me that wild idea. <laughs>
3: <laughs> He's going to have to rewrite that now that we have drones and we can see everything from above. <laughs> um,
1: Michael, we haven't talked much Considering the name of this podcast uh, about Studio Ghibli, uh, what Ghibli do you see or not see in Song of the Sea?
2: Gosh, where to start, really? And it's so it's so easy for us with you know, having talked about Ghibli so much in this podcast to talk too much about Ghibli in relation to these films. But let's dig into this because they are a stated influence on this film. Actually, Steph, I w- I'd be interested. We teed this film up to you as song, uh, Song of the Sea, being cartoon saloon's Ponyo mm. I wondered did that resound with you at all what do you make of that
3: I think it's definitely um yeah easy to make the Ponyo comparison because it's kind of a mythical girl attracted to the sea um there's some lovely uh riding on the waves towards the end which is definitely like a great moment and kind of um a good one to compare to that um but I think I feel like there was also a lot of other kind of Ghibli going on. I also got quite a lot of um, Spirited Away vibes from it, um, especially with the grandma character and Maka, the kind of evil owl lady. Um, that gave me very kind of Yubaba slash Zeniba vibes. Um, I think the kind of doubling up of those characters was like really fun. And definitely in that kind of sense of, Um, children going on an adventure and they're kind of making up the rules as they go along a little bit. You're just kind of along for the ride um, and you're just kind of entering this incredible fantasy world that's kind of popped up in the middle of the real world. That definitely um, gave me Spirited Away vibes a lot. But um, yeah, definitely definitely Ponyo Ponyo vibes. I mean, Ponyo is like probably my favorite Ghibli. So this was definitely... um, this had high expectations to live up to, but I think it like surpassed it because obviously it's doing a lot of different stuff with it. But um, yeah, I can't resist somebody running on top of a wave. That's just my thing.
2: <laughs> it's, it's almost That's the, why you love Point anti-ponyo. Break so much.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it, it is almost the, the anti-Ponyo in a way because she is a sort of human girl discovering this magical side of her rather than the magical girl trying to, you know, falling in love with with this new human part of her Mm -hmm. Um, so it is about that discovery of the magic in the landscape which is very spirited away there are shots where um they're they're going through the countryside and you just see these like toppled over stone figures which is very similar to some of the shots at the beginning of spirited away it's also very totoro really because it's you know a a sibling film similar similar sort of age differences maybe Um, but also rooted in this sense of that big tree, that big tree might have at the heart of it, some sort of mythical creature that you can go on an adventure with. Um, Mm. That sense that the the, landscape is so rich with folklore, that storytelling can just occur out of anywhere.
1: And just, just carrying on from the messaging that we regularly see in Studio Ghibli films and how that we can see that in here as well. I mentioned it already, this kind of bottling up of emotions and freeing them, and in the tradition, more of the Miyazaki films, there is a message here that's a, a call to live. And we said that that is, that, I think it was just live, was the tagline on Princess Mononoke. And the last thing that Naoko says in The Wind Rises is to live. And when those when those jars get unscrewed or broken here, and those, those spirits float up, and the people are filled with their emotions again, um, even if those emotions might be stormy or might be sad, there is the underlying message of to live is to achieve, like just the the act of surviving is a win here. And that's something that we can see through all of Ghibli and absolutely in this one too.
2: We always tend to focus on Miyazaki when we do these comparisons. Um, I think there's a real Takahata, aspect to this as well which is worth introducing in this film because we can explore it later Um, not just in the way that they play with form i think we said this in the last episode where the 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 playing with perspective is similar to how takahata would throw out the rule book of cut of of animation with his films in this one in the flashback sequences at the beginning you have the the frame sort of melting away into white, which is something, you know, Takahata does in Only Yesterday and as well as My Neighbors, the Yamadas and Princess Kaguya too, although of course they wouldn't have seen Princess Kaguya when they made this film. It also makes me think that final sequence that I mentioned is so similar to the end of Pompoko. It's like the one last hurrah of these creatures as the coming devastation of modern society is going to wipe them away reminding us what their value could be and what we're losing. Mm. So there is that great wisdom to it as well, as well as everything we've just said about the Miyazaki aspect. If it feels like, you know, we'd, we're projecting a lot onto them now, <laughs> we could be, all, of, all of this chat could be easily swept aside by one tweet. <laughs> like, no, sorry, we, don't, we haven't seen any of those films. No, we know they have engaged with Ghibli on a certain level, but it really feels that they have a, a rounded sense of what Ghibli does and, and, and can do rather than just the, the grace notes of Miyazaki. But speaking of grace notes, um, what, what was really good in the last episode that I'd like to do now is just kind of rattle off any real highlights we had, just little moments <laughs> that might not have fit into our conversation so far. Anything come to mind?
1: Uh, yeah, the dog. <laughs> uh, an amazing dog. Um, I mean, it's certainly better than any dog Ghibli ever put to film. Uh, Ku is king Um, and that the sequence where Ku kind of flies them over the landscape of fields and the way that the fields rush under him it's like uh, reminded me very much of the snowman the way that just the land just like flows underneath them on this magical journey Um, yeah Ku was a big highlight for me
3: (laughs) I I love the like fringe and it's just like a curly lion over his eyes that just like flops up and down like when he bounces is like such a good a good little detail, and of course all the seals, seals the dogs of the sea, so cute. Like <laughs> oh
1: god, yeah, the the way that the light is used underwater, like when she turns white and turns into the little baby white seal, and then you just get mm. like like these silent musical sequences with all of them under the water, just amazing, um, and that's like mentioning musicals the way that some of the animals kind of line up sometimes it's almost like like the way that uh dancers might fan out in an arch in an mgm musical or something and you see that with the seals and you see that in the wolves in wolf walkers as well and it's like there is this beautifully choreographed dance of nature that humans aren't allowed to be part of
2: the, the music in general is fantastic in this film the songs are great you've got yet more uh Irish kids singing Steph I know you dug that in Secret of Kells
3: yeah it's it's a big thing for me I think that's just going to be I'll cry every time a child sings <laughs> in with an Irish accent I think I've discovered a new thing that's just going to make me emotional <laughs> yeah
1: Steph I did I did set up in the previous episode that this was a, a multi-hanky film uh did did you sh- shed some tears
3: I did. And like, I appreciated it as well because sometimes, <laughs> um, sometimes with like animation films, um, especially like recent kind of Pixar movies, I feel like from the outset, they're like, you are going to cry in the next two hours. Like, we're making it so that you will. And that just feels very aggressive to me and i don't like it and i think this actually like earned and it's tears that it got out of me um and also yeah i mean just every time poor little 10 year old ben shed a tear it just made me made me well up a little bit but um <laughs> yeah i i just think that big kind of emotional climax where just like everything happens at once there's just this kind of real kind of um emotional release from like every single character um it's really kind of well earned and yeah I was I was pleased to be to be curled up crying on a Saturday afternoon on the sofa to that
2: (laughs) I think it says a lot about the differences between you and me Steph that you're curled up crying on the sofa watching this film feeling lovely and I'm there pausing freeze framing at the shots of um Ben's dad's childhood bedroom uh, (laughs) looking at the posters on the wall (laughs) and it's really interesting um, how you know often when you see bedrooms in films particularly animated films they kind of go for look-alike sort of things that suggest bands or films of the time whereas this one it's very specific recreations of a handful of quite iconic posters you see the the Rolling Stones lips and tongue logo. You can see the Richard Avedon John Lennon poster on the wall. There's a really distinctive Frank Zappa poster of him in his underpants, um, as well as a Farrah Fawcett poster. And that, so it just, it just says a lot about me, really. I think that that's what I'm well, doing with my time.
1: For those listeners that have only ever heard this podcast without ever seeing us, you you might um, you'd be forgiven for thinking Michael might be a member of the Gleason family, were you to look at him. Uh, and I think. <laughs> Michael, considering how much admiration you've shown for Sad Dad Brendan in the last two films, is this this is just you telling us that you wish you could be part of some kind of animated Gleason clan? Because you look like it already in the real world, so why can't you achieve that?
2: <laughs> I think that's unfortunately a goal I'll never be able to achieve, but I'll I'll, I'll hold out hope. <laughs> So, listeners, this is the segment where we usually rank the films in our miniseries in order of preference. And we're in a bit of a pickle this time because I think Salooniverse was the extent of the puns that we could come up with related to <laughs> Cartoon Saloon. In the past, we've called this segment The Leaderboard, Jacob's Ladder, The Popularity Contest for our Satoshi Khan miniseries, but we couldn't think of one. For Cartoon Saloon. So, maybe that's something that we could throw to you if you have any ideas that what we could call our definitive rankings of the films, <laughs> let us know uh, on Twitter at Ghibliatech or email us ghibli at little.studios.com. So, for now, the untitled Cartoon Saloon rankings from the three of us where would we put Song of the Sea against The Secret of Kells? Steph, I'll come to you first.
3: Well, I think. Song of the Sea is definitely my number 1 at the moment. Um I think I just kind of connected more with the characters on this one. Um you can really see the like development of the the style and the kind of the storytelling and it's just like so great and I think obviously like I did also really like The Secret of Kells but this one is just like number 1 for me at the moment.
1: Jake Um well Michael, you compared this to an Amblin film, and then we've also been comparing it to Studio Ghibli films. So in terms of like the pillars of my filmic life, you're taking a Steven Spielberg thing and a Ghibli film and smashing them together. Uh, this one this one worked very well for me. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's definitely number one, but I have to say that it's uh, I, Secret of Kells, I've only seen once, whereas everything else I've watched multiple times. Um, so, who knows what might happen on The Secret of Kells rewatch?
2: I think we're all in agreement, really. I think that Cartoon Sloan's films in general have all been fantastic. That's why we do a miniseries about them, to be honest. But you see such a, a leap in terms of ambition, but also what they achieve in a film like Song of the Sea compared to The Secret of Kells, which is an astounding debut, such an amazing calling card for some amazing talents. But also Song of the Sea is just for for me personally, one of my favourite animated films the last 20 years, maybe ever. So it has to be number one currently and we'll have to see whether either of the two features coming up in the next two weeks challenge it, really.
1: (laughs) Michael, are you saying that up because Puffin Rock is actually going (laughs) to (laughs) win? I think,
2: well, well, of course, we had to lead TV series out of it because as with Twin Peaks, The Return, skunk-fu is actually a movie and is the best thing that cartoon saloon have done so yes <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, well before we get to uh puffin rock and everything else uh we must first cover uh the breadwinner which is going to be happening next week uh so make sure you watch that one in advance But if you've got your own ranking or your own thoughts on these, absolutely email us at ghibli at little.studios.com. Keep up with us on Twitter at Ghibliotech or keep up with us all individually if you want to as well. Uh, Steph's over on Twitter at underscore Steph Watts.
3: Michael is there at Michael J. Leader.
2: And Jake is on Twitter at Jake H. Cunningham.
3: Bibliothek is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Mo, and the show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill and Steph Watts. That's me. I'm the editor as well. Hi, everyone. Thank you for sticking through the credits. Now, if you enjoyed our chat with Rebecca Sugar, creator of Steven Universe, and did start watching Steven Universe, you might recognise a familiar voice. Uh, Lisa Hannigan, who plays Ben and Serge's mum in Song of the Sea, also is the voice of Blue Diamond in Steven Universe. And yes, she does get to sing in that too.